Hello and welcome to the very first episode of season 3 here at Amplify. Back in episode 8 of season 1 where I spoke with Isaias Hernandez, activist and eco-educator at Queer Brown Vegan, we covered the issue of an eco-gender gap where the onus of being sustainable lay disproportionately with women. I've created an infographic about this as well which is available on our Instagram page if you're interested. But this got me thinking about the women who work in sustainability. Women running their own businesses with the aim of reducing waste, introducing reusables, developing new circular economy models. Just how much support were they getting for their work? As it turns out, very little. Women-owned businesses lack access to debt-free capital, a serious impediment to their entrepreneurial goals. So in this episode, we get into the funding landscape, systemic biases that prevail, and how they affect women, particularly those from BIPOC communities, and what we need to do to rework this landscape so women can start, sustain, scale, and thrive as business owners. week's episode on Amplify. Today I'm in conversation with Olivia Owens who is the founding member and the business development and partnerships manager of iFund Women of Color. iFund Women is the go-to marketplace for women-owned businesses and the people who want to fund them. They offer immediate access to capital through a premium online fundraising experiences where they offer everything from access to small business grants, expert business coaching and a network of other entrepreneurs. So thank you so much for being here, Olivia. I really appreciate it and I'm really excited for our conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm, ex- I'm super excited to jump in. Great. So Olivia, can we just start off by contextualizing what are some of the issues that women of color in particular encounter when seeking funding? Sure. And I think it's important to kind of set the larger stage. I think one of the most talked about types of capital comes to venture capital. And one of the stats that we always use is only 1% of founders, regardless of their gender, are raising venture capital. And so I think that's an important data point to start from. And then when you dig a little deeper, women receive less than 3% of that 1%. And then Black women receive 0.06% and Latinx women 0.32%. So we are working with very, very small numbers. And so when it comes to the obstacles and the issues that they face, a lot of it is systemic. We saw it play out with the PPP where minority-owned businesses were shut out of that type of funding resource. We see it when it comes to VC. um, And we also see it when it comes to, to loans. So We see it just in the sense that they don't get access to it. But then for the women who are pursuing funding for their businesses, when we go deeper and look at other types of funding, like crowdfunding, which is a space that iFundWomen plays in, I launched iFundWomen of Color because I recognized that there was a deeper hesitation when I was coaching women of color on crowdfunding, whether they felt like they didn't have a strong enough network that they could turn to for support with their businesses, or there's a certain level of vulnerability that comes with asking for support. And so breaking down those barriers and coaching them on how they can leverage alternative funding sources for their businesses and really kind of take control of their funding journey. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you talked about, because I feel that 
I mean, I'm, you know, sort of very new with my project for the podcast and everything, but I have such a difficult time asking for help as well. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine that it must be so much worse for black women and for particularly in the US context as well, like for Latinx women and all of these other categories that are just not represented, let alone even talked about in the, in the funding space. Sure. And I think it's the lens that you're looking at it from. We really see crowdfunding not as asking for donation or charity for your business, but Mm -hmm. as an exchange of value. So for crowdfunding, you're selling products, services, content experiences in exchange for cash to push your business forward. And so coaching them on how to best make that ask and have the confidence that they need to be able to do it is how we overcome that. And can you talk about the early days of when you started iFund Women of Color, what was that like? Were there any challenges that you faced? Were people like sort of pushing that whole argument where they're like, oh, why, why do women of color need this? Or what, why, what about X, Y, Z? Did you face that like level of what aboutery perhaps? It's funny because I would say we're still in the early days of building iFund Women of Color. We launched it in January of this year. And so we're definitely building it from the ground up. And that question is something that I thought a lot about. How do you, how do we answer this in a way that can help people understand? Because I think when you ask that question, there are a lot of assumptions that you've already made around why a platform like this would would need to exist. But I think that the numbers speak for themselves in terms of why women of color need platforms that create access for them. And I Think Women of Color was born to make crowdfunding more accessible to women of color. And it's worked. What we hear from our community is, I knew about iFund Women, but when I saw iFund Women of Color, I knew that I had to sign up. I had to be a part of that. I think that that is something that has been proven out time and time again. And then it was also, we were fortunate to launch iPhone Women of Color in partnership with Caress, who is doing a $1 million investment into the community, because I think that's the other piece of it. I was talking to someone earlier this week, and they mentioned the concept that women of color are over-mentored and underfunded. And I think that was another really important piece for us that, yes, we can create access to coaches and resources and tools, but simultaneously, we need to create access to that funding. And so I think the, your question about what were some of the more difficult parts of getting this community and platform off the ground, of course, COVID-19 has to play a part in that. We had grand plans for 2020 and what this partnership would look like with Caress and how we would be showing up for this community. And we pretty immediately had to pivot. And we were fortunate to be able to have already built the structure around funding women of color so that we could quickly pivot and do $500,000 in COVID-19 relief grants for 200 women of color in our community. And so I think once you have the structure, then your ability to meet the need that exists in the moment uh, becomes so much easier. And I think that's what I'm really, I'm really proud that we had already been doing this work and were able to just meet our community where they needed it most. When we talk about equity, is that an elusive goal? Should that not even sort of be on the radar at the moment for entrepreneurs that are starting out? What are your thoughts? So I think it definitely needs to be on the radar, one of the first calls that we do with our entrepreneurs is my capital plan. 
to that conversation is thinking long term about what is your vision for this company? Is this something that you want to grow and scale really quickly and, and eventually have an exit? Or is this something that you want to run for years and years to come? Is it something that you're really passionate about? And I think based on your answer to that question, that helps you figure out what type of capital should I be leveraging? And I, I think one of our other main purposes, or at least for me, of why I wanted to start this community is because we need to reframe the narrative about what it means to be a successful business. Again, going back to that statistic, if only 1% of companies are raising venture capital, why is that the pinnacle of success? Another statistic is Black women represent 42% of the 1,800 new businesses started in this country every day but their average revenues are 24K. And so that is a number and a problem that we can directly address and, and move the needle on and refocus around a successful business as a revenue generating business. And how are we making sure from the very early stages that you're creating products and services and companies that generate revenue? And that comes down to creating strong business models that comes down to avoiding going into debt in the earliest stages of your business. Again, why we're so dogmatic about crowdfunding because it allows you to prove demand before you invest in supply, fail fast, fail cheap, and then get on to the next idea for the next big thing that you're going to build. And when we talk about, you know, sort of like leveling up. So once, once businesses have done that, once entrepreneurs have sort of crowdfunded and they're ready to move on to the investor stage, you know, what, what is investor sentiment like? I mean, how open are investors to investing in women-owned businesses? So I think one of the important points here is that people invest in what they know. And so often women, particularly women of color, are building products and services that solve the problems that they face in their lives. And the majority of venture capitalists are white men. And so those are two completely different experiences. And so being able to explain someone who doesn't look like you why this product is something worth investing in is a massive obstacle to overcome. And so... I think it's encouraging to see more women and more women of color getting into the VC space so that those conversations can happen with people who look like you. But there's a whole lot of investing in what you know and, and playing it safe to make sure that you're hitting those high returns that have worked for you in the past. And do you think there should be any sort of measures or you know, any sort of like policies or campaigns or initiatives that could possibly help equip and inform investors about the importance of investing in women of color owned businesses, you know, sort of like, you know, the kind of financial literacy programs that perhaps you might have for entrepreneurs, just the equivalent of that for investors. I think that we've seen a very similar bias play out in other areas of our society and also seen how policies don't always create the change that we're looking to have. So I don't know. I really don't have the answers. I think if anybody had the answers, we would have seen the change. But I do know that there are certain levers that we can pull in certain areas that we do have control over, like going outside of the system to, to push our businesses forward. And that's where we really want to spend our energy. Yeah. And I think that's really great because, I mean, we've talked a little bit about funding and we've talked a little bit about having this access to debt-free capital that I fund women 
in its entirety provides, but there's also, you know, all of these other bits that you provide, which is uh, mentorship and access to networking and connections. And, and so how, why was it important for you to sort of provide that entire package? They all tie together. And I think the funding should actually be at the end. We know that getting access to coaches and mentors who have been there done that to help you avoid those rookie mistakes are crucial in making sure that you're laying that strong foundation that you need. And then we also know that access to a community and a network where you can get that validation, where you can find those opportunities for collaboration and where you can just connect are so, so important. Entrepreneurship is such a lonely road. Even if you feel like you have a team behind you, this is your baby that you're putting your all into. And so having other people who are sharing in that experience, uh, maybe if your family and friends aren't in this hustle with you, is extremely important. And then I also think that I love that through our partnership with Caress, we've been able to really get creative in the way that we're creating those access, that access. So as a part of Unilever's employee day of service, they had employees actually volunteer to do one-on-one mentoring with iFund Women of Color members. And then there are also employees who are leading workshops through our platform. And so we just had Unilever's head of PR for North America and their head of sustainability lead a workshop on creating strategic partnerships with brands. That is access to information that these entrepreneurs never would have had. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's critical in knowing those inside tips and the, the insides of the way it works and like who are the actual decision makers inside of brands and how do you pitch and, and really show the value that you can provide. And the call needed to go on for three hours. We only had an hour, but um, you could see how hungry they were for that information. And so there is funding is only one piece of it because once you have the funding, you need to know how to best leverage it. And so it's gotta be a twofold conversation. Do you think then that your platform can also help sort of overcome sector-specific biases? Because, right, for instance, I've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs who are based in India at the moment, and there are statistics that back this up as well, where you are more likely to find, you know, women heading startups that have something to do in zero waste or health and wellness, you know, and there are fewer women entrepreneurs in a sector such as agri-tech, right? So, so do you think your platform can help overcome that sector-specific bias? I do because it gives the entrepreneur the opportunity to go to the consumer and say, hey, I want to do this thing. Are you interested in it? And then when you talk to a VC, you can say, hey, I was able to raise X amount of dollars from Y amount of people. This is what I know. And you're able to show that traction, that that traction word that always comes up. And I think that's a beautiful thing about our platform. It is industry agnostic. We see everything from farm to table restaurants to medical devices to mobile apps. It really runs the gamut. And I think that that is important in giving them that stepping stone to show their value ahead of trying to to have those other types of conversations when it comes to other types of capital. 
In India recently, one of our unicorns, uh, Zomato, they're like a food delivery slash discovery app, right? They've recently introduced a period leave policy. And that sort of created, you know, all of this very passionate debate and discussion um, in Indian corporate sector and startup sector as to like, what does that policy mean, whether it's necessary and, um, what does it mean in particular when we're still sort of at a place in our conversation where we're still striving for equality, you know, quote unquote equality. We're not talking about equity at the moment. And by that, I mean like, you know, equity in terms of people and their representation as opposed to financial equity. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do you think that working for a woman-owned enterprise can also mean that employees will have access to period leave, maternity leave, et cetera, you know, because these are already such contentious topics everywhere in the world. I think that is definitely probably a goal for a lot of the women entrepreneurs in our community who are starting businesses. They left the corporate world because they didn't feel like it served them and their needs. And so as they're building their businesses, they now have the ownership, the control, the decision-making power to build companies like the companies that they would want to work at. And so working at a company like iFundWomen, we've seen that play out completely in, in the sense of the employee benefits that we received that are a simple no-brainer, whereas it would be a conversation at, at a company that maybe wasn't started by a woman. So I do think that there's a, a certain level of intentionality that is brought, but I think that also gets, that same theory gets replicated in the types of businesses that we create and the fact that they inherently go towards the betterment of our communities and we're much more likely to, to put the money that we raise back into our communities and so on. So um, I definitely think that that kind of, cycle rings true in many different areas when women have the decision-making power. Yeah, because, I mean, we've talked about, you know, like how we can create this platform and this community and how we can propel entrepreneurs to a certain level. But also, like, I think to think of the bigger picture, it's useful to think about how they in turn can actually reform working culture, right? How the mm -hmm. work culture and how they can reform corporate culture and how they how we can actually have a system where something like a period leave or a maternity leave is not, you know, such a contentious topic or not something that is like the the focus over and above whatever good or service they're providing. Completely. I mean, the majority of businesses were started by men for men. So it's, mm. it's no wonder to that the structures don't serve us. And so there are definitely strides being made, which is positive to see. But when you have somebody who's in that head seat, who understands the experience of the other half of the workforce, it's definitely going to be different. Yeah. And where do men feature in this conversation? You know, like what, what can men's contribution be towards creating this environment and, and sort of going with the flow as opposed to, you know, just grabbing the mic for themselves and, and sort of making it about them? Do you know what I mean? Like, especially during the post Me Too era where, where you know, immediately in the aftermath, there were people, there were men who were just like, oh, now I can't compliment a woman, you know, as if that was 
a bigger concern as opposed to actual sexual harassment at workplaces, for instance? I think the most important thing that we can do is recognize our own blind spots. You do not know everything. That's impossible. And so understanding, taking a pause before you open your mouth and say, do I actually know what I'm talking about? Am I actually going to make an educated statement or response? And then understanding those areas where you may not have strength or a, or a wealth of knowledge and bringing in a person who does and asking for help instead of just using the same party line you've used forever or making it about yourself when likely it's not. And so I think the most important thing that you could do is recognize what you don't know and find somebody who does know it. Yeah. And I think that sort of, that sort of stems actually segues really well into building this culture of accountability. And and perhaps we can actually talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and how that's affected entrepreneurs, consumers, because there's been this surge in conversation. I mean, it was always going on, but it's just now Mm -hmm. that people are paying attention, right? Mm -hmm. When they're like, okay, we should invest and give money and buy from Black-owned businesses. So how, how do you think the Black Lives Matter movement has actually impacted Black entrepreneurs in the U.S.? Well, I want to start from the consumer side of that because I think that a lot of this conversation around effective allyship and what does that look like became shopping intentionally and supporting Black women creators and Black entrepreneurs as a whole. And so that then, as a result, created massive growth for a lot of these Black-owned businesses, which is amazing to see. But there's also this, this layer of how do I settle the fact that I know this growth is born out of tragedy? And how do I appreciate the growth while understanding the devastation that it, that it was born out of? And then I think another layer is how long is this going to last? How long are you going to be thinking about Black-owned businesses? Because we've always been here. And is this just a trend? And I think between those two things, it's a really overwhelming time for Black entrepreneurs because their businesses are booming. We just had a woman in our community who was featured in Pharrell and Jay-Z's entrepreneur video that they just dropped. Her name's Angela Richardson. She's the founder of Pure Home, which is a home cleaning product business. And she's experienced massive growth. And that is so amazing to see. And with Beyonce dropping her Black business directory, it's, mm. it's amazing. And I think the way that this year has kind of worked with August being Black Business Month, so it still feels like there's a strong conversation happening and so on. It's just like, what is the... How do you plan for your business come December when we have no idea what it's going to look like and what people are going to still be thinking about? I will say that I think with the election coming up, there are kind of two ways that it could go with either the election just completely consuming the news cycle and nobody being able to think about anything else, or it could create like a further sense of anxiety and desire for control where you want to continue to create the impact that you want to see in the world so you're still being intentional. But again, who knows? We'll just have to wait and see. I follow this activist. She's brilliant. She's uh, British. She's, her name is Michaela Lodge. And I follow her on Instagram and she retweeted this. Do you remember the week when everybody was posting black tiles on Instagram mm-hmm. as a show of solidarity? 
So she reposted a tweet, or I can't remember if she tweeted it herself, where she was like, the best Oscar goes to the people who mm-hmm. posed these black tiles, but then did absolutely no anti-racism work thereon after. And, and I think that fits in really well into your concerns and about how this could just be a trend, right? Because social media has that amazing and sometimes really like disruptive power where it can consume you with one trend. And when it's something like Black Lives Matter, it can have a positive effect, but then it can be very difficult measuring whether this is something long-term or whether people will just eventually tire of it. I know, and I think it's, I think the most important thing that we can do is educate on sustainable actions that you can take. Posting on your Instagram story every single day something something about the movement or, or, or something about whatever is going on in conversation is one thing, but I think the most effective allyship that exists is by com- combining your unique gifts with your individual privilege, and that is your power. So if you sit in a decision-making role in a company and you have the ability to bring in Black employees or employees of color and, and be intentional about that, then do that. Like, I don't, I don't think that everybody needs to be doing everything. I don't think that that is sustainable, but I do think that there are certain ways that we can show up in our lives every day. For example, we had a panel last Friday and we asked one of our founders to come speak on it. And she said, I'd love to participate. I just want to make sure that there are women of color represented on the panel. That takes no, little to no effort, mm. but the impact is massive. And so understanding that it's not this overwhelming thing that we expect you to have the answers to, but more so, how are you showing up in your everyday life with the tools that you have to ongoing impact that change? And when it comes to what established brands and businesses are doing when they jump on this bandwagon, right? And, and they'll talk about the importance of it or they talk about how they support it, but then they perhaps aren't necessarily doing the work and putting their money where their mouth is. How can consumers sort of distinguish between that performativity as opposed to where they're actually doing what's important? That's a really good question. I think what's tough for me is a business is a business. And I guess where I'm much more putting my focus and my expectations are on the human and what the human is doing. I think brands have millions of dollars that they're, they're trying to deal with. And even, even the mere fact that we're in the midst of a pandemic and college football thought that it, thought that it was still going to happen because they had so much money on the line. Like, I just think that look at your brand, see what they're, see what they're doing over time and how they continue to show up over time. I think it's the only way that you can really tell, but my expectation lies much less on bigger brands and much more on the people in my life who I can see what they're doing on the day to day and how they're showing up. Yeah. And and I think, I mean, it's difficult, right? Because a lot of times, like you rightly said, that it's, it's not that these systemic biases or, or this racism or the systems or the cultures that have sort of that we're only now just waking up to or, or are talking about actively it's not that they've just come into being they've always existed and it's mm-hmm. just now that people are actually perhaps even questioning some of their 
you know, most favorite fashion brands or restaurant chains or what, what have you that, you know, what are you doing? And, and it's not just perhaps enough to just say that you support it without actually having somebody who is uh, a person of color or who is black in your team, right? So you're actually diversifying what you already have built or introspecting as opposed to just giving a fluffy PR statement. Completely. And I think that, again, the way that the ripple effect happens is if every single person in that company is looking internally about their own actions and it will naturally pour out in in the work and the the in product that the the brand creates and so again i think it's just much more on a human level and hold people accountable i do think that then it gets tricky into cancel culture and how productive is that Mm -hmm. i mean um when you're thinking about canceling a brand and who you're actually hurting it's the employees that work there not necessarily the the investors or the people at the top. And so again, what is the most productive way to affect the change that you want to see? And I think that that happens on a very granular level in your own life, on your day to day, and the people around you. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, this is just me speaking from an individual level, right? Because India and brown people have a massive, deeply rooted racism issue as well. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's, it's not, I think the important thing is that a lot of people don't talk about it. It's, I mean, it's important to note that a lot of people don't talk about this mm-hmm. because they're afraid of being called out, you know, because yes. they're afraid that they're going to be reprimanded or they're going to get a rap on their knuckles perhaps in a very public way if they're, if they're expressing their views on social media. And so, so they just don't say anything at all. And that's actually even more harmful. So how do we then hold people accountable? And I think particularly if you can talk about, you know, with respect to influencers and people who have, yeah, well, who wield a lot of digital influence, you know, like how can we hold them accountable in a constructive way where they don't sort of go into like, oh, I'm not going to say anything and I'm just going to be on the, you know, completely quiet and be complicit in whatever happens next. One of the questions that I found myself asking kind of at the height of the racial injustice conversation was, do you want to be heard or do you want to be right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a really important distinction to be made because if you want to be heard, then there's a certain level of meeting somebody where they're at and communicating to them in a way where they can receive it. And that's where, that's where I sit. I want to have a conversation. I want to hear where you're coming from. I want to validate your emotions. And I, I want to have a, a real, genuine, authentic conversation about it. I don't want to shame you. I don't want to come off as condescending because none of that is productive. Nobody's going to receive or, or expand their mind when they're being talked down to. And so I think if the, if your purpose is to actually help this person see where they might've gone wrong, I think it's, it's about meeting them at a level that doesn't put them on the defensive immediately. Yeah. And, and I think one of the, I mean, just talking about brands, right. And, and building a culture of accountability. One of the greatest examples perhaps is 
recently, uh, Munro Bergdorf, who is a British trans activist, she talked about how three years ago, L'Oreal actually dropped her because she was being very vocal and she was like asking questions about uh, to L'Oreal about how diverse their teams was mm-hmm. and, and, you know, what were they doing in terms of anti-racism? And then they just dropped her because it was too political, right? And, and they didn't want to get involved in that. And then fast forward three years later, um, you know, they were first, uh, one of the first few brands to jump on the bandwagon of posting the black tile and being like, oh, we're very committed to racial justice. And, and she spoke up about it. And they actually had a conversation, a very constructive dialogue, you know, and, and she, was, she was sort of reinstated and, and of course, uh, re- recompensed as well. So I think that's a really good example of what can happen if you are consistent with this as well. I agree. I think that consistency is key, but I also think that the line in terms of what is too political has been moved. Like that conversation with L'Oreal never could have happened had everything that came up to that point not happened. So I do think that brands are operating in a new normal and stepping into conversations that they never would have before. And so I do love to see that she was able, or they were able to, um, kind of come back to the table. But I also think it's like, how do we have these conversations from a solution-oriented standpoint? Yeah, just bring some solutions to the table because these brands aren't thinking about it that way. Mm. Um, So that same example of how do, uh, if I'm being asked to speak on a panel, how am I making sure other women of color are being represented, bringing to the table other ways that that same scenario can play out on a, on a larger scale. Yeah. And, and moving on to perhaps the next most important thing that, I mean, there's so many important things that have happened this year. Right. But I think we have to talk about the pandemic and we will be talking about the pandemic for a long, long time to come. Mm -hmm. How has the lockdown, I know perhaps you guys aren't in lockdown, we certainly are, but um, how has the lockdown and pandemic affected businesses and entrepreneurs? in many, many different ways. For the entrepreneurs that had physical spaces, it's been a very, very tough time to pivot and navigate into this virtual world. For the entrepreneurs that had solutions to the problems that we now faced in, in a pandemic world that enhanced the experiences of being at home and trying to connect with People, even though you couldn't be in person, those industries are booming. Like puzzle companies. We just had a puzzle company raise $10,000 in like five days on our platform. Wow. (laughs) Um, And then uh, there are also the entrepreneurs who are at home with kids and trying to figure out how to balance, which which balance just seems like an absurd word because that's almost impossible, but Mm. trying to figure out how to navigate ensuring your kids are receiving the education um, that they need and, and still trying to push your business forward. So it is a melting pot of emotions and experiences and challenges and obstacles that everyone is navigating just step by step. Because again, we can only see so far into the future, particularly I think that was true before and now it's even more true. And I think they're maintaining that, taking it a step at a time, and also just kind of finding strength in the fact that the solutions that they're trying to create are really in alignment with their passion, and that's what keeps them going. Do you think that moving forward, you know, when the pandemic has sort of been 
managed a little bit or subsided, you know, whatever, um, whatever sort of the best outcome in which to deal with this is. Do you think moving forward, people will flock to socially conscious businesses and, and they will sort of recognize the value of entrepreneurs who are doing something different, who are doing it at a much smaller level than say perhaps Amazon, right? And, and, and sort of decide to consciously, intentionally invest and buy from them? I think there, we've definitely moved closer towards that in the past few months. I unfortunately believe that we still have a long way to go. I personally think that quarantine and, and the pandemic have, has humbled us in terms of how we spend our time intentionally and also how we accept responsibility for the things that we can control. And I think that we still need a push beyond this concept of speed and flexibility that makes Amazon so powerful as opposed to the ripple effects that our, that our actions can have and how making that one choice to buy from that small business owner, that entrepreneur impacts much deeper in a higher quality way as opposed to buying from an Amazon that gets you the thing that you need quicker and easier. Potentially that, I mean, are you optimistic or are you sort of just very, very cautiously so or not at all going forward? I am optimistic. I, I'm spoiled that on a week-to-week basis, I get to connect with our community um, and touch base with them and see how they're doing and hear their wins and talk through their obstacles. And despite it all, they're shining and supporting each other mm-hmm. and filling up each other's cups. And so I can't help but be optimistic when I'm so tapped into their journeys and see their resilience. So yeah, I'm definitely optimistic. I think as just sort of like a final comment, do you think that, you know, consumers or people can, how can we as like a community sort of help propel or enhance or just, you know, show up a little bit better for entrepreneurs in our lives to help them navigate being sure. in business during this time? I think there are three things that you can do. I think if you have the means, buy from small business owners, buy from entrepreneurs, do the research. There are so many lists, so many directories. Head to iFood Women. We have an entire page on Black-owned businesses that you can support through our platform. So I would say before you check out from your Amazon cart, stop and say, hey, could I buy directly from somebody's website? And then the other thing that, I, that I'd say, if you don't have the, the means right now, share about these businesses, highlight them um, on your Instagram stories, promote them as much as you can, because maybe if you don't have the means, somebody else in your network might, they just need the access to the information to know where to buy from. And then third, I'd say if you sit in a position of power where you can pull in entrepreneurs for interview requests or um, article features or collaborations with your with your larger brands, things like that. Those are all big ways that take little to no effort to show up for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, as long as we don't give our money to Jeff Bezos, right? That, that, that's the main <laughs> thing. Just do not do that. 
And I think he might have enough. <laughs> yeah, he definitely does. I don't know if you've seen the thread, but there is actually um, someone who calculated that even if he was to solve all of the world's problems, he would still have like $30 billion. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, I had you. Well, on that it. note. <laughs> Uh, Olivia, thank you so much for being here and for talking and, and for sharing all of your amazing wisdom and nuggets of information. Really appreciate it. And I would encourage everybody listening in to actually check out um, iPhone Women of Color and iPhone Women in general. And I know that this is a US-based platform, so perhaps it's immediately relevant for people and listeners in the US. But I think some of the things that you said are definitely generalizable where we can support small businesses and show up for them. So thank you so much for being here, Olivia. Thank you for having me. Love the conversation. And I think that these are, these are the types of conversations that need to continue to happen for us to, to move the needle forward. So I appreciate you having me. Thank you. this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find all the relevant links and handles to know more about our guest this week in the episode description. If you have any feedback, suggestions, requests, or simply just want to get in touch with us, then please do head over to our podcast website. We are available to flag and say hi to via Facebook, Instagram, or email.